Welcome, this is um, AT4, which is the fourth of the anatomy of the thorax. Um, this is entitled <coughs> The Anatomy of the Mediastinum and the Diaphragm. In the next one I'll go through the contents and the anatomy of the anterior mediastinum and the lungs and the pleura, bronchopulmonary segments. So this one we're confining really to the structural anatomy of the mediastinum and the anatomy and embryology of the diaphragm. Now, we already know that the mediastinum is that bulky septum that lies between the pleural cavities and the lungs there contained. The relevance really is its extension from the root of the neck to the diaphragm as a highly mobile structure that can be readily compressed or shifted, for example, in a massive air leak, a so-called tension pneumothorax. And that contains a large number of structures that can be infiltrated in cancers like cancer of the esophagus and cancer of the lung as two common examples where such a presentation and such knowledge of anatomy can define which cancers present with features that make the tumour inoperable and incurable by surgery alone, essentially irresectable. And so I think we have to use some of these terms. It's partly historical, but also therefore partly clinical, this separation of the mediastinum. Now, we typically describe a division of the mediastinum with an imaginary horizontal plane from the sternal angle, which with a bandsaw would run back to the T4-T5 junction, as we've already discussed. So this is really the division line between what people call the superior mediastinum above and the inferior mediastinum below, and therefore very artificial. But in that inferior aspect, there is a further artificial division into an anterior, middle and posterior component. Now we hear this all the time, but my students don't really know why it is like this. Um, when you look at the mediastinum, this division would seem sort of a little superfluous or even unnecessary. And the reasons for this are, however, important and historical. To get rid of the historical, we know that chronic infections of the neck, a perforated esophagus with a fishbone or a chicken bone, for example, can track an abscess collection or collections down the superior and into the posterior mediastinum. And the point about this is that these were the findings in 18th century and 19th century autopsies of cases, and they allowed the sort of mechanism of infection to be defined by subdividing the mediastinum in that way. But the other reason for this division is, in a sense, far more practical and timely. The anterior mediastinum can also be considered really the retrosternal space and also such in pathological terms. There's actually very little that sits there in the anterior mediastinum. A retrosternal goiter may extend down into that space from the neck and of course a thymic mass may present there as well. 
The latter might be an example of a thymoma or perhaps a thymic lymphoma and of course governs the anatomy of the thymus for a thymectomy, a thymic excision, which is occasionally used in the degenerative neurological condition myasthenia gravis. If we get behind that, we see the middle mediastinum, and it's not something we clinicians actually use, not a term that we use. It's just the place that's occupied by the heart and great vessels, the pericardium and phrenic nerves. Uh, Nobody really refers to it outside of an anatomy room as the middle mediastinum. You can on a CT describe it in such a way, but it's the heart and the great vessels, really. And then we get, really, to the posterior mediastinum, where there's also not that much going on. You've got the esophagus, the great vessels, and the sympathetic chain, and the thoracic duct. Now, in clinical terms, this is an area which, if you're looking at a chest X-ray, this large posterior mediastinum, houses the second most common site for paediatric tumours. The first um, in children is the brain tumour. And then tumours, usually benign neural tumours, or so-called ganglioneuromas, as they're called, of the posterior mediastinum in children. These can become quite large and they occasionally can become malignant ganglioneuroblastomas, probably the chest, the posterior mediastinum, emanating from the sympathetic chain, is the site of about 20% of paediatric neuroblastomas. So that's really why we divide the mediastinum, and nobody ever discusses that, but it makes sense, since it's not really a structure that you would normally subdivide in that way. It has a clinical and an historical significance. Now, I want to expand here in general terms a little on these mediastinal uh, divisions and components. To elaborate on this, there are no true divisions as such within the mediastinum, but it's still useful in describing the place of individual mediastinal masses. It remains a complex anatomical region against the mediastinal pleura. And there are several division types, typically as in Gray's anatomy, there might be four subdivisions. The superior mediastinum and its superior thoracic aperture, admitting the aorta and its major branches, the intrathoracic trachea, the upper third of the thoracic esophagus, the upper half of the superior vena cava, and the upper poles of the thymus. There's also a three-compartment model, which would be anterior or anterosuperior, middle and posterior, and as such it doesn't recognise a superior mediastinum, so that the anterior mediastinum in this model extends from the thoracic inlet superiorly to the diaphragm inferiorly, and it's bounded behind by the anterior pericardium, the innominate vein, the aorta, the brachiocephalic vessels, and in this model the middle mediastinum extends only as high as the pericardial reflection. There's also what's called the Shields three-zone classification, which was devised in 1972, an anterior compartment, or what's called a prevascular zone, a visceral compartment, and a paravertebral sulcus, or so-called retrovisceral zone, so that every zone extends from the thoracic inlet in this model down to the diaphragm, where the visceral compartment fills the entire space in front of the spine 
and where the lateral border is the mediastinal pleura. And that system, for example, leaves an aortopulmonary window and also an azigoesophageal recess, which are not purely then mediastinal compartments, but, but which are lymph node stations that can be involved with esophageal and lung cancers. And so we don't talk really about this rather unnatural separation of bits of the mediastinum. And there are a number of models, if we think about it, which have therefore clinical significance. But these things are actually important. The aortopulmonary window, for example, is bounded above by the lower part of the aortic arch, low down by the back wall of the ascending aorta, medially by the left main bronchus and the esophagus. And that area contains the vagus nerve and the left recurrent laryngeal nerve as they're arching around the aortic arch. And it should be noted that about a third of lung cancers, which are in the left upper lobe, metastasize to lymph nodes in this area. By contrast, if we do accept an, aso- an azigoesophageal recess, then that is that interface between the right lung and the mediastinal reflection at the area where the azigos arches forwards into the supervena cava. And there's also uh, a so-called Heitzman mediastinal classification for those interested less commonly used, but one based on the locations of the aortic arch and the azigos vein, which was described in 1977. It's more a kind of radiological classification of the mediastinum, which describes six compartments, a, a thoracic inlet, an anterior mediastinum, a superior aortic area above the arch, an infraortic area below the arch, an esophageal area lying anteriorly, and the azigos vein posteriorly. So I think that'll be enough, in a sense, for us to understand a bit more about the mediastinum than is typically included in uh, conventional anatomic uh, literature. For those interested in mediastinoscopy, uh, which is also particularly useful in uh, lung cancer uh, and in lymphoma uh, diagnosis, they might want to check one of these out on a YouTube or equivalent platform uh, because they're not commonly done. But uh, this would provide uh, a useful clinical um, connection. Now, I think we can move to the diaphragm, and I want you to look, if you can, at a prosected specimen, uh, if you can get access to that, from above or from below, or at a plastinated specimen, uh, which uh, is not, in my view, quite as good. Now, as I've stated elsewhere in this series, if we know a little relevant embryology, then we know a lot of anatomy. It unfortunately doesn't work the other way around. But the diaphragm is an example where an appreciation of developmental anatomy is useful. You may well be asked to write short notes on the diaphragm or to discuss it in an open way in a viva. And here's how that should go, in my opinion. You'd say that the thoracic diaphragm is dome-shaped and readily divisible into a club-shaped central tendon and a peripheral muscular part. Well, the central tendon first is not a tendon and it's not particularly club-shaped. But if you're lifting up the diaphragm as we're speaking here, you see the two separate areas very clearly, often a rather kind of transparent connection between these two regions. Now, here we're aided if we know a little bit of simple embryology. In the embryo, there are four separate but important origins of the diaphragm. The all-important septum transversum ventrally, 
the two pleuroperitoneal folds which arise and fill in the area laterally and the dorsal mesentery. The septum transversum arises between the third and the eighth week very early and this forms the central tendon and also forms the fibrous pericardium. If you examine the prosected specimens and open the pericardium, you'll find that you can't separate the central tendon from the pericardium, and that is because they're developmentally the same, and they have, if you like, a compartmental nerve of the region, which is the phrenic nerve. Now, these things are not just useless facts. They're important. It's not enough just to look at it. It's more important, indeed, essential, that you see what you're looking at. In some environments, patients can arrive to a remote centre after blunt motor vehicle trauma for emergency surgery. And one may find that the findings in the abdomen do not sufficiently explain a patient's hypotension. One could in the past, before there were on-table echocardiograms, take advantage of this known anatomy and just pick up the central tendon from below between two Babcock forceps and open directly into the pericardial sac. And you'd see, if you found a hemopericardium, whether or not um, there was the likelihood of a cardiac injury. And, and that proved life-saving in a couple of cases that I can recall 20 years ago. It's a primitive assessment now and wouldn't occur in a first-world environment. But it takes an anatomical advantage of the fact that the fibrous pericardium and the central tendon of the diaphragm form from the same structure. A diaphragmatic rupture in a motor vehicle accident also occurs at the junctional region between the lateral muscular and the central tendon sections. It's a natural point of weakness. And again, in the days before mandatory seatbelts in my country, in the late 1970s, we'd see every evening people coming in with facial lacerations where people had flown through the windscreen. Afterwards, after that mandatory seatbelt legislation, almost immediately that kind of injury disappeared and we saw ruptured diaphragms and sometimes rupture of the small bowel. The cause of the former really is a sudden increase in the intra-abdominal pressure uh, against the lap seat sash, which was pretty tightly done in those days, against the abdomen. And so what would happen was that there was a dramatic increase in intra-abdominal pressure by the effect of the lap sash of the seatbelt, and the diaphragm would pop in its cupola, in its apex or dome, or sometimes a small bowel would rupture in a specific place. Perhaps that's something that you'll hear in the, in the future in our small bowel um, podcast, but perhaps you might wonder where would the small bowel rupture in blunt trauma from a motor vehicle accident seatbelt injury. For the answer, you'll have to wait, I think, for the abdominal anatomy section, which will start later this year. Of course, the rupture that occurs in the diaphragm is the pathologic effect of Laplace's law, Again, something that you're going to have to wait for, including why we don't live with Laplace's law very often in real-life systems. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. The point about the diaphragmatic rupture is that this occurs between the pleuroperitoneal folds and the central tendon of the diaphragm in the sort of lateral or postrolateral region. These sort of discussions of Laplace's law and so on are for another time. If anyone wants me to expand on this, you can let my... P.A. Margaret No on Megando, M-E-G-A-N-D-O 57 at yahoo.com and I'll create a short podcast on it. Uh, it's indeed quite interesting. 
Of course, we learn and see a couple of things in the examination of the diaphragm. The congenital diaphragmatic hernia, for example, in neonates also occurs between the septum transversum and these lateral pleuroperitoneal folds. And we also see the phrenic nerve distributing itself from the centre of the tendon and radiating outwards. And that's important too, because incisions in the diaphragm should then be made as peripherally as possible and not across that central area, since the latter will both denervate and devascularize the diaphragmatic muscle. It's not a good thing to do at all. So it continually surprises me that these simple surgical lessons are no longer taught, but they're pieces of living surgical anatomy. Returning to the embryology, the phrenic nerve has, of course, migrated its course from the C3 to C5 myotomes between the membranes of the septum transversum with the dorsal mesentery forming the encroaching vessels. The commonest congenital diaphragmatic hernia is then, as I've said, at the junction posterolaterally between the septum transversum and the pleuroperitoneal folds. This is the so-called boctolic hernia, where the common pleuroperitoneal membrane fails to form a common aponeurosis with the developing transversus abdominis muscle in the area between what will become the 12th rib and the quadratus lumborum. Now, these hernias that form because of faults in these fusion lines therefore don't have a sac, whereas if the membranes fuse but the muscle fibres fail to migrate from the cervical myotomes, then a hernia that's a congenital hernia, does have a sac. If you continue to examine the central region, it has an anterior section and two lateral sections or leaves with the muscle attaching centrally to the aponeurosis and to the circumference of the thoracic inlet. The origins of the diaphragm are very clear, costal, sternal, or perhaps more correctly, ziphysternal, and lumbar. Please go over these as I discuss them. There are three discrete muscular parts to the diaphragm separated by non-muscular areas, therefore, the lumbar, the costal, and the sternal components. Quite easy, yes? The muscular aspects are continuous with the transversus abdominis, and the diaphragm and the transversus abdominis actually form a continuous sheet with the lumbar fascia and the rectus sheath surrounding the abdominal uh, um, cavity, like a corset. So put simply, the innermost layers form a continuous sheet or structure. And we remember in the chest that we can think of the diaphragm as part of the innermost layer, along with the innermost intercostals, the subcostals posteriorly, and the transversus thoracis anteriorly. We've discussed these. The same way the levator ani too could be considered with the transverse abdominus as part of the innermost abdominal wall at a pelvic level. And we'll consider that in greater detail, of course, when we do the pelvis next year. The anterior section is the shortest part of the diaphragm running from the ziphysternum through the posterior rectus sheath through to the central aponeurosis. And that area houses the less common anterior hernia of Morgani. The lateral area is, of course, entirely costal. And on one side is the right sternocostal triangle of Morgani, on the left, there's a little sternocostal triangle of Larry, and these are merely natural points of muscle separation, but they're potentially points of herniation. The lumbar attachment is broad on either side of the vertebral column, 
with the formation of the right and the left crura. The word crus is, of course, Latin for leg or pillar. Or crooks, which is different, of course, means cross. Can you think of where else we see crura in the body whilst I'm on it? On it, it? Well, we have the crus cerebri. We have the penile crura of the corpora cavernosa and also of the clitoris and the crura of the fornix cerebri. So the costal origins we know from ribs 7 through 12. If you look at a specimen from the chest side, you'll see the attachment to these. The lumbar costal gap, as I've said, is Boctalex. Vincent Boctalex was a 19th century bohemian anatomist. I think that's where he came from, not how he behaved. The principal blood supply enters with the phrenic nerve on the undersurface of the diaphragm with the inferior phrenic arteries coming off the aorta, usually a little below the celiac trunk, and with the right one sometimes arising from the renal artery and forming a collateral anastomosis posteriorly with the 8th to the 12th posterior intercostal arteries. The larger anterior division of the inferior phrenic forms an anastomosis with the pericardiophrenic, which is a branch we'll recall of the internal thoracic artery. And there's also a further anastomosis laterally with the musculophrenic. So all of these terminations of the in, uh, internal thoracic artery, the musculophrenic, the superbiogastric, they all join together along with little collaterals along the pericardiophrenic artery. For around the edge of the central tendon, this kind of anastomosis is important. And it's important, therefore, not to devascularize in making incisions into the diaphragm, advancing bits of the diaphragm, devascularize large parts of muscle. The lymphatics from this region drain anteriorly with lateral lymphatics near the phrenic nerve and a posterior group near the crura. Now we have to talk a little bit about the openings in the diaphragm. There are multiple openings to allow the passage of structures between thorax and abdomen or vice versa. And we remember, of course, that, that, little, um, that little phrase, T8, T10, T12. And we remember 8, 10, 12, almost have to remember nothing else. The orifice for the inferior cava, that for the esophagus, that for the aorta, respectively. And actually, if you look at the aorta in your specimen, you'll see the aorta is not really going through a true orifice. It's more kind of retrophrenic rather than truly hiatal. The IVC hiatus often has nothing else going through it, but sometimes it can include the right hepatic vein and even the right phrenic nerve. The esophagus transmits not only the esophageal hiatus, let's say, transmits not only the esophagus, but also the vagal trunks. Now, this was of relevance because in the days when peptic ulcer surgery was common, um, this is going out into the 1980s and 90s even, I mean, when we had one such case every week, and before the highly effective anti-ulcer, antipeptic ulcer treatment, we needed to know in great detail the anatomy of the vagi and how to approach them. The first point is that the anterior vagus is adherent to the front surface of the esophagus at the gastroesophageal junction. It's a flat, very thin band, and it can be double or duplicated in about 10% of cases. That sort of data was pretty important in preventing a recurrent stomach ulcer, usually a duodenal ulcer, 
following the operation of what was called a truncal vagotomy. Now, you had to find the posterior vagal trunk, and that was typically some way behind the esophagus at the esophagogastric junction and well to the right, and it's separated posteriorly from the esophagus. When you put your finger around it, it feels like a hard bit of piano wire. You can't just snap it with your fingers. It is a real structure. Um, by the way, we should also know that the gastroesophageal junction is approached when we get into the abdomen by dividing the lateral triangular ligament that comes off the left lobe of the liver and reflecting that lobe away and uh, retracting it. Usually the liver is uh, nice and supple. You don't see that, obviously, in the cadaver where it's hard and fixated. And then what you do is you find tissue over the esophagogastric junction, which is called the phrenoesophageal ligament, and that has to be divided so that you can then encircle the esophagus with a finger gently. And I'll go into not only gastroesophageal approaches and anti-reflux approaches when we get into the abdomen, but we'll also go into some details of the difference of uh, the vagi and also the different types of vagotomy that we used to do, a truncal vagotomy, a selective, a highly selective vagotomy. That's not for now, but that's for um, <clears throat> in the future. The important thing here is to note that the esophageal hiatus not only transmits the esophagus and the vagal trunks, the anterior and posterior vagal trunks, but also the left gastric artery, which is very critical to preserve in anastomosis of this area, and an accompanying left gastric vein, the so-called coronary vein, which is very important in patients who develop esophageal varices in portal hypertension and liver cirrhosis. Behind this area is the thickened tissue in front of the aorta, which we, I think, rightfully can call the median arcuate ligament. And you should be able to see that very thick tissue plane. It's substantial. And this tissue uh, there over the median arcuate ligament, the so-called preaortic fascia, is the tissue that the American surgeon Lucius Hill used to describe in suturing the gastroesophageal junction uh, for... Uh, uh, reflux, gastroesophageal reflux, is an anti-reflux procedure. This was called a so-called hill gastropexy, which was one of the earlier, but I would say less successful operations for gastroesophageal reflux. Um, while we're at it, we can look at the differences also between the right and the left cross, or crus. The right cross crus arises from the top three lumbar vertebrae and its intervertebral discs, the left from the top two. So the right is just more substantial. The right cross angles or kind of in circles, whereas the left forms a kind of straighter left part of the hiatus and a little sliver of the right margin. I don't particularly think that this looks like a double-breasted coat, as some anatomy books have suggested. It's more complex than that. And in fact, in about 15% of cases, the left crust can substantially contribute to forming the right margin of the esophageal hiatus. There's also a little transverse intertendinous muscle that runs on top of the diaphragm from the central tendon and passes posteriorly to the esophageal hiatus. So it's a little bit more complex. And these muscles maintain the closure of the esophageal hiatus on inspiration. That's why it has a diaphragmatic attachment. 
The crural aspect keeps the gastroesophageal angle, which is important in preventing reflux, but whilst the diaphragm descends, there's a kind of scissor action in there, which is more complex um, if you think about it. Uh, the muscle in that sense is more, the so-called muscle of low, as it's called, is more like a figure of eight running behind the esophageal hiatus and in front of the aorta. And really, it's more unique. It's not really like a double-breasted jacket at all, more like a kind of infinity symbol that's lying on its head. The Morgani gap that I mentioned earlier lets the internal thoracic artery through uh, on one side, and the Larry's gap does the same with the internal thoracic vein. Uh, we won't go through the factors that prevent reflux. That'll be done when we're talking about the esophagus and stomach in the abdominal section. Um, we will be, of course, discussing the thoracic esophagus in, the, in this section. Of course, behind uh, is the aortic hiatus, as I've said, not a true hiatus, more retrophrenic, but there's the passage of the aorta, the azygos vein, the aortic plexus, and the thoracic duct. And it's often, I think, that the students seem to forget that the aortic hiatus or the esophageal hiatus has other things going through it. And it's not just for those structures. For those interested, if I haven't already mentioned it, the azygos draining the right posterior abdominal wall and the right chest and mediastinum emptying into the SBC at the manubrial notch level is so-called uh, since the zygote means twin and hence azygos means not twinned, untwinned or unpaired. In the embryonic stage, of course, what's interesting about this system is that there's both a left superior vena cava and a left inferior vena cava. And these left systems is also... Uh, is seen therefore below the diaphragm, these left systems regress and they coalesce below the abdomen and form the left renal vein and the hemiazygos system. Above the diaphragm, the left superior vena cava regresses and coalesces into the left brachiocephalic or innominate vein and the so-called accessory hemiazygos systems. This also explains, of course, why the left renal vein runs all the way across the posterior abdominal wall and has different tributaries to the right renal vein, such as the suprarenal or the gonadal vein. And it also explains why the left brachiocephalic vein runs all the way across the thorax and has different tributaries to the right brachiocephalic vein, such as the thymic veins, the inferior thyroid veins, and the left superior intercostal vein. The caval foramen, as I've said, is at T8, and that can transmit the right phrenic nerve as well as the inferior vena cava. The medial lumbar cleft permits the passage of the greater splanchnic nerve from the abdomen out to uh, from the chest out to the abdomen, the azygos and the hemiazygos veins, and the lateral lumbar cleft transmits the sympathetic trunk which runs under the medial arcuate ligament. So that then leads to a median uh, arcuate ligament in front of the aorta, a medial arcuate ligament, which you can see running from the body of L1 to its transverse process, under which runs the sympathetic chain, 
and then a lateral arcuate ligament running from the transverse process out to the 12th rib uh, over the top of the quadratus lumborum under which runs the subcostal neurovascular bundle. The phrenic nerve may be supported by some proprioceptive elements laterally and peripherally from the intercostal nerves. They tell the diaphragm, in a sense, where it's sitting in space. There are typically four motor branches from the phrenic nerve, the sternal and anterolateral, posterolateral and crural. And incisions, as I've said before, should be peripheral. They should be as short as possible and in a circumferential direction because it's possible to make a radial incision, but it must be between visible branches of the phrenic nerve. Most safely, these are placed between the pericardial attachment to the diaphragm because that's embryologically, as I've said, all one structure and the entrance point of the phrenic nerve. On axial images, there are three different configurations to the diaphragm muscularly in the way I've defined it. Uh, a type 1 with a relatively smooth curve concave posteriorly, a type 2 with an anterior divergence and discontinuity of muscle fibres as they insert onto the costal cartilages, and a type 3 where the middle leaflet is located inferior to the xiphoid, and these have radiologic significance. There are asymptomatic posterolateral defects that are seen on CAT scan in the diaphragm in about 6% of normal people, with three discrete types of defects, a type 1, which is a localised defect in the thickness of the diaphragm, but with muscle continuity, a type 2 defect with an apparent defect in the diaphragm, where the muscle fibres appear to separate into parallel layers, and with the continuity of the diaphragm maintained, but without any protrusion of a mental fat, and a type 3 with any defect, but without loss of continuity, but with protrusion of a mental fat, usually seen on the left side, and that's more common in older women. There are other conditions, as we know, such as partial eventration of the diaphragm. This can be congenital or acquired, and is really part of incomplete muscularization in the former case, usually involving the anteromedial portion of the right hemidiaphragm. The only other thing I think we should mention is a little bit about the anatomy of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, uh, because that is affected by the embryology of the system. It's about 8% of congenital diaphragmatic hernia. For those uh, interested, about 8% of all congenital malformations, about 5 per or 10,000 births. But it is an interesting condition that it also occurs <coughs> with pulmonary hypoplasia and pulmonary hypertension. To reiterate, the intraembryonic coelom is the precursor of the body cavities, and the cranial section of these is the pleuropericardial canals that are pushed away by the developing lungs. I did say my embryology is basic. So that there are thin folds appearing on both sides of the heart, the so-called pleuropericardial folds cranially, and the pleuroperitoneal folds caudally, and these together with the septum transversum, along with the esophageal mesentery, and tissue that's referred to as the post-hepatic mesenchymal plate, which is the mesenchymal tissue of the dorsal liver closely related to lung growth, all of those structures form the diaphragm. Now, bear with me a little here, since congenital pulmonary airway malformations, which some call congenital cystic 
adenomatoid malformations, they form the most common congenital developmental anomalies of the lung. In humans, lung development, which I'll go into uh, a little bit in the next podcast, starts at about three weeks with six discrete morphological periods or stages. There's an embryonic, a pseudoglandular, a canalicular, a saccular, alveolar and microvascular phase. And they all include the interaction of very specific genes like the GATA4 or the FOXA2 or SOX2 genes. And uh, some of these genes are involved in congenital diaphragmatic hernia like RAR or the SOX2 and FOXA2. Actually, since the diaphragm forms later at eight weeks, that theory that lung bud development affects uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia has been brought into question. But overall, this is an extremely interesting and complicated model. I'll summarise by saying that patients with aneuploidies, pathogenic single nucleotide variants, the de novo copy number variations, they can also develop um, uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernias that usually appears as a monogenetic syndrome or as an association with other anomalies. The Bokdalek, as we've already said, is the common variant and the survival of the child is dependent upon the presence of other malformations, the size of the defect, the lung volume, the presence of liver herniation, the gastric position and other factors like the birth weight, the APGAR score, chromosomal anomalies and the presence of pulmonary pulmonary hypertension. Anomalies in these children can be found in all body sites. There can be cardiac anomalies, anomalies of the urogenital system, limb malformations, nervous system malformations, orofacial clefts, gastrointestinal anomalies like interstinal atresia and so on. And about 40 to 50% of probands are associated with other congenital anomalies. There are syndromic variants, for example, some individuals with complex uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernias have a readily identifiable genetic syndrome uh, or discrete chromosomal anomalies, uh, trisomies and um, deletions, particularly trisomy 13, trisomy 18, trisomy 21, uh, trisomy 22 and so on, these sorts of things. Uh, There are Individuals with syndromic congenital diaphragmatic hernias, they're more likely to be diagnosed prenatally and they'll have about 10% of first degree affected relatives. Um, uh, these particularly have syndromic, pre- uh, they're born preterm and uh, have low birth weights, recognised syndromes. There are a range of these and I won't go into them. If anyone's interested, I'm happy to do a podcast on these things such as Fringe syndrome or Pentalogy of Cantrell and uh, uh, and other things, the Donnay Barrow syndrome and other examples of these. I'm quite happy to go through it. Um, I think we might finish there because we're getting off topic uh, from the um, anatomy. It's a very interesting um, uh, subject. Um, cytogenetic testing obviously is done in these families with chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis for karyotypic anomalies, uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernias, heart defects, rhizomelic limb shortening like the Pallister-Killian syndrome 
are assessed more, more formally by chromosomal microarray analyses these days and uh, by exome sequencing in difficult, uh, in difficult cases. So it's a fascinating subject, but we're off next in the next podcast to discuss the pleura and the lungs. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.